that's the distinction. I mean, for me, the winemaking part of it um, is facilitated by the, wor- the heavy work and, and paying attention to detail out there in the field that it takes. Go out and wear out your shoes, you know, wear out your truck tires and your brake pads and get from mountaintop to mountaintop and, and go look at this stuff because you don't want to miss crucial steps. So, you know, we dance with Mother Nature and Mother Nature steps on toes occasionally. So. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's show, I sit down and speak with Robert Foley, better known to his friends as Bob. Bob is a world-renowned winemaker and owner of Robert Foley Vineyards in Napa Valley. Dubbed as the god of Cabernet by acclaimed wine critics and publications, he is known as one of the iconic winemakers that helped make Napa what it is today. Bob is best known for his unique style of creating very expressive wines that finish gracefully. Bob graduated from UC Davis with degrees in both viticulture and enology and spent the beginning of his career working for wineries such as Height Cellars, Markham, and Pride before moving on to create his very own wine under his name, Robert Foley. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. Just kind of diving right in, you've been surrounded by wine your entire life, but at what point did you know you wanted to make a career in the industry? Well, yeah. So just a little bit of background on that. My parents, you know, I grew up in sort of a, a agricultural part of the East Bay. Um, my father was in aerospace and subsequently in fusion research for fuel. But he and his uh, uh, colleagues were some of the leading, you know, nuclear scientists in the world. Had a passion for wine. And my parents pulled out their, their walnut trees in 1964 and planted Cabernet Sauvignon. So um, I was around a vineyard. They were not in the vineyard business, but I was around it. I had to help prune. And then during harvest time, these brainiacs had come over and have a blast and drink cocktails and make wine. And uh, I thought it was fascinating, you know, seeing ferment- fermentations happen and tasting some, you know, wines at a fairly early age. But, um, you know, it really what really affected me was our next door neighbor, this guy, Bill Miller moved in to our neighborhood and saw this little pilot plant operation, a winemaking operation, this little Cabernet vineyard. And he, and he said to my father, where did you learn to do this? You know, and my dad said, well, I went to UC Davis and talked to Dr. Olmo up at the, in the viticulture department. And he, he made recommendations on you know how to plant it, how to trellis it and, and, uh, and prune. And, you know, Bill was like, this is professional looking, you know, system you got going on here. And he said to me, hey, Bobby, are you interested in, in wine? And I said, well, yeah, it's, it's, my parents have fun doing it. And he said, well, Bill worked for Inglenook. And he said, let's go through and I'll show you what a real winery looks like. So, you know, he took me up and we, we went through and tasted the 1968 reds that hadn't been bottled. They were still in cask. And I just, I loved the vibe. It, things were very quiet. You know, it was a place where you could calmly, you know, pay attention to details and make discoveries and so forth. And Bill sent me to Davis. He said, go to, go to UC Davis, get your degrees, which, you know, in the 1960s, being told you could major in winemaking in college was, <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? This sounds too good to be true. So 
you know, that was, that was really how I got pointed in the right direction. And I went through the programs at Davis, graduated in, uh, and uh, moved to the Napa Valley in the mid 1970s. And that was how my career started. You know, it, the funny thing is, you know, there, the industry didn't it wasn't really going. I think there were like 24 functioning wineries here. And when I first was having this discussion with Bill when I was in high school, there were only like 14. So the, the industry hadn't taken off. And when I got out of college, it's right about when that Paris tasting happened. And all of a sudden, people who had not been taking California wine as, as a serious commodity or something to even compare with the French wine. Suddenly that was a, that was a game changer. But boy, I'll tell you the first couple of trips I made back East to show people the California wines we were making, they were like, are you kidding me? You think you can make wine in California? It's like, well, <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> so. People engulfed in the wine industry usually have like a single bottle that triggered that sort of aha moment or passion. Was that the case for you? And if so, what was that wine bottle or was it just the overall experience? The, the first wine that, that got my attention. I mean, we, of course, my parents drank wine with dinner and they allowed us, you know, even underage to have a glass of wine. And that was, you know, it was just part of the meal. I'm an right. Irish father, but I had French Swiss mother. I mean, the French Swiss, the Valaisans, man, they drink wine like you wouldn't believe. So <laughs> you know, I, had, I had the genetics for it, and and I certainly had the um, the interest at, from the parent pod. But um, um, so you know, we tasted wines pretty often, and then when Bill took me to Inglenook, you know, '68 was a pretty darn good vintage in Napa Valley, and we were tasting the red wines there um, that were you know, ready to go to the bottle pretty much. But there was one tank I tasted and I, I said, what is this? I've never tasted anything like this before. And he said, read the tank. There's a little grease pencil board on the side of this oak tank. And it, it said uh, 1968 Charbonneau. And I said, Bill, what's Charbonneau? This is interesting. And he said, see, you have an interest. Go to Davis and pursue it. So that was, that was the wine that really got me. I mean, when I graduated and my first job out of college, I worked for Joe Heights. Uh, suddenly I was working with Bella Oaks Vineyard, Nate Faye's Vineyard, uh, Martha's Vineyard, the Novak Vineyard that labeled, later be, became known as uh, Spotswood. You know, these were some dynamite Cabernet vineyards, and, and I'm tasting 74 Martha's Vineyard out of barrel, getting it ready for bottling, which is what you know we did that year. And I, you know, was blown away at how a wine could have so much personality. Not only because it was grown, you know, in, in between Oakville and Yonville, which is dynamite place for Cabernet, but it had this eucalyptus influence from the trees nearby the vineyard, and it, it, that was a magical thing for me to discover. So, you know, of course, if you told Joe Heights it smelled like eucalyptus, he'd get down on you. He said, no, it doesn't. It smells like mint. Well, okay, whatever. <laughs> you don't mince words with Joe, that's for sure. <laughs> what was it about the Charbonne that really stood out to you and, and made it different in your mind that just kind of made you question and yeah. and love it? Yeah. So Charbonne, I mean, so it has this this you know, an unruly grapiness to it. It's like wild grape jelly, but then there's a mustiness too. And I thought it was smelling oak, but you know, the wine was never in an oak barrel. It was in, you know, 50 year old oak tank. So it wasn't picking up that flavor, but it was intriguing to me. And, you know, I, I didn't 
find a Charbonneau vineyard until years later. So this was this was in 1969 when I was tasting this wine, and in 19 and sorry in 2002, um, we contracted the same vineyard that had grown the Engelmann wines, and you know the fruit was ripe. We brought it in, and I bit into the cluster of grapes, and I, there's that flavor again. I mean, I was remembering it decades later. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And I'll tell you that, you know, most wine grapes, when they're fully ripe, they're not that great to eat, you know, especially Cabernet. I, I can't stand eating Cabernet grapes, but but Charbonneau is delicious. I mean, you can, sort of can't put it down. You know, if you get back on the forklift, you're going to get a really bad sugar jag from eating like corn on the cob. It's, it's a delicious <laughs> grape. So then after you graduated UC Davis with a, with an enology and viticulture degree, where did you go? What did you do next? Yeah, so back back in those days, the battle days, viticulture and enology were two completely separate degrees. So viticulture was a uh, specialization of plant science and enology was a specialization of fermentation science. So I went five years at university to complete both programs. So with both both of those degrees uh, under my belt, um, you know there weren't very many jobs because all fifteen of them had been taken by the guys who graduated uh, maybe six or seven years before us. I mean, really, there just weren't very many jobs. And my advisor uh, was telling me probably ought to move to Fresno and get a job working for one of the big guys. You know, get some some winemaking experience. And I said, well, you know, I, if I have to move to Fresno, I'm, I'm probably going to just stay in Davis and find something to do. But uh, uh, I typed up a resume on a typewriter and I made a trip through the Napa Valley. One of my stops was at, at Heights. Um, and he called me back and he said, I love your resume. I, I love your, um, the amount of work experience you have because I had, you know, worked for farm service in high school, you know, grew up driving tractors and loaders and, and doing agricultural work. And then um, all my years at Davis, I worked for Hunt Wesson in a tomato cannery. So I'd worked, you know, around the cook room. I knew how to work with stainless steel equipment and all that. And, and Joe liked my work ethic. He said, this looks really good. I don't care about your grades. I want to look at your work experience and the fact that you have actually completed the program at Davis. He said, I don't have any jobs, but I'll, I'll be glad to call everybody, you know, that I know. So he gave me a list of names and, you know, I went to Fremark Abbey and I went to Chapelet and I went to Chateau Montalena and went all these different wineries that were in existence there, just passed out my resume and and Marianne Graff offered me a lab job up at Simi, up in uh, Healdsburg. And that was really the only solid offer I had. And I basically packed everything up. I graduated, packed everything I owned into a little Datsun pickup truck and was heading out the door to move up uh, to Healdsburg. And the phone rang and it was Joe Heights. And he said, I just had two guys quit. So I have full-time permanent employment for you. And I said, oh, okay, um, I'm on my way out the door. Let me uh, let me go have a talk with Marianne. I'm sure she'll be cool with it, um, which she was. And when I got back to call uh, call Joe and, and, and uh, you know, agree to come to work for him, there was another message from Chateau Montalena offering the same thing. And I was like, wow, okay. Well, Jerry Looper had just left and gone to Montalena to replace uh, Mike Gergich and Gus Brambilla. So that seemed like a pretty good thing. But, you know, what entered my mind was, Jerry was new at Montalena and Joe was, you know, had his own thing, you know, he had developed it, he built it. And I thought maybe that would be a better first step for me, you know, in the, in the industry to learn from something that was rock solid like that. So I went to work for Joe Heights and um, um, did everything that 
Joe wanted us to do. I mean, there were three of us working in the winery. So, every, you know, hands on everything. Um, but we had to chop poison oak. We had to round up cows. We had to fish the catfish out of the pond because it was a drought year and the water level was dropping. And so we got them out and put them in the spring. I mean, just you did everything. But, you know, Joe, Joe was, a, you know, he's a Zen master. He was a he was a retired Air Force drill sergeant before he got into the wine, wine industry and ultimately was working in the lab under Andre Chelyshev at, uh, at Beaulieu. But, uh, you know, he forced you to learn attention to detail. I mean, that was the thing about Joe. And um, I had a really good uh, rapport with him. Um, I enjoyed working for him and for the family, even though I, know, I knew already where I was going next because I had a, an offer which I had to kind of sort of keep under my hat for a while. But, uh, um, you know, really until the, the day he, the, the days that his last days, um, we, we stayed friends. I remember the last time I really had contact with him was on the steps of the Catholic church in St. Helena following Louis Martini's um, uh, memorial service. And Joe just came out and basically put his arm around me, hung on me. And I said, Joe, you're still kicking. And he goes, you bet I am. There's not much left of me, but, <laughs> but we stayed friends until, you know, lifelong. I mean, that was one thing about Joe. You, he either loved you or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Your, no, I love that. And I think learning, learning under that much discipline and attention to detail, it definitely, um, had helped to put you where you are now, which is incredible. So when you were at Markham, there was, there was really a heavy focus on Merlot and, you know, Merlot has a bad reputation or not a great reputation. I uh, honestly don't know why. Why uh, Why was that? And do you see it coming back regarded as a prestigious grape varietal? Yeah, so that's a good, that's a good whole bunch of questions there. Um, <laughs> so Markham had absolutely zero focus on Merlot when we started Markham. So while I was at, at Heights, Bruce Markham came along, bought the old little co-op winery north of town, which was a United Vintners plant. Um, and we basically spent, you know, several years developing that into a functioning winery and then for, you know, basically 10 years. And then he sold it, you know, to a large corporation and then they had the financing to build the facility that you see now. But um, when we started Markham, we had uh, under uh, Markham's ownership, he had a vineyard in Oak Knoll. Most of that was uh, 1930s, 1940s plantings by the Bartolucci family. So it was a really old vineyard. Um, uh, he had a more modern vineyard that was planted uh, by uh, United Vintners' parent company to Inglenook, um, just north of what's now Napa Nook. So this is just north of Yonville and just south of Oakville, but up against the west side there. Beautiful Cabernet vineyard, heavily virus, so the leaves were quite red, but... It had historically been uh, the Van Lobensels vineyard that made was a major contribu contributor to the uh, cask Cabernets, which were Inglenook's reserve wines that got a lot of kudos during those old Hugoland wine auctions. And then the third vineyard was at the base of Mount St. Helena, and half of it was um, Cabernet, and the other half was Napa Gamay under contract to Robert Mondavi Winery for their Gamay Rosé program. So this was, these were those days. So what we had were these old vineyards. Um, the Cabernets were unbelievable, but they were going to take time. And having been 
uh, trained really by Joe Heights and his cronies, Andre and Theo Rosenbrand and all these guys of the day, uh, I, I'd been trained to take time to make wine. And then they're talking about five years before you release it, you know, two, two to three in the winery and then a couple of years in bottle. So here we're sitting on this great cab, but it's going to take forever. And, you know, what else did we have? These old vineyard down in Napa was producing Chenin Blanc, French Colombard, Grey Riesling, Gamay Beaujolais. Um, I mean, how do you get taken seriously? You don't have a red wine. You got like 14 wines and 13 of them are white and your wineries on St. Helena Highway. And all your, you know, your buddies from Davis that got jobs are working for Stag's Leap or, you know, the more important wineries. Like they're looking at you going, come on, you guys, you get real. So, yeah, you're going to have to wait for our cab. So what we did was we we fished around and we, with limited resources, we created two non-vintage uh Merlots. One was 76 and 77. The other was 77 and 78. And we released them under a very obscure second label because we were basically just trying to have something red. That year, there were two Merlots bottled in North America. That's how important Merlot was. The other one was Sterling. This predates Duckhorn and predates the Merlots that came out of Rutherford Hill and all these other ones that turned out to be great wines. But um, yeah, so we had it because we were waiting for our Cabernet. So to us, it had no importance at all. And when our Cabernet was getting ready, the first one was getting ready for a release, we told our distributors, hey, here comes our cab, drum roll. You don't have to mess with this Merlot stuff anymore. And they said, don't stop making it. People are falling in love with this. And by 1982, this wheel was turning. And I think there were maybe 12 wineries in Napa that were actually producing Merlot by then, and they were getting better and better. But... We were cautioned as students at Davis, graduating students at Davis, we were cautioned by our um, professors. They said, you're going into a, a new industry and you're going to be providing your product to a developing clientele that, that really don't know that much about your product. Be careful when something's successful, you're going to have a tendency to overdo it. Those words, I mean, I think it was A. Dinsmore Webb who gave us that, that talk, but um, I'll never forget it because, you know, we saw it happen with White Zinfandel. We saw it happen with Sweet Chardonnay. And then Merlot came along and, you know, a whole bunch of people just fell in love with it. And sure enough, what the industry did was they overplanted it. They basically planted Merlot in soils that were really not suitable to make making great wine because Merlot, like like any wine grape, really, it's terroir is terribly important. And if it's, if it's not well-drained enough soil, you get these really relaxed kind of muckball wines. But in those days, and we're talking about like late 80s, early 90s, anything that, w- that had Merlot on the label would sell. So in comes this, you know, this flood of mediocrity, the bad red tide. And then it sort of got cool to not like it. You know, when the movie came out, that people often say, well, did, did the movie kill the wine? I said, no, the industry killed the wine. The movie just made fun of it. I mean, the movie was just a symptom. So, yeah, it got over a planet. But, um, you know, like everything, you know, in time that that gets sorted out. And the, the as people's palates get get more and more sophisticated and discerning, they stop buying wines that they don't like and just because they can afford them. And so those will just they'll, they'll weed themselves out. You know, so I started the Markham Merlot program. The, at the beginning, we had like one or two vineyards that we were working with. By the end of my 15 years there, we had 16 different ones. 
from the base of Mount St. Helena to Carneros. So every soil type that Napa Valley has to offer, we had vineyards all the way up and down the valley producing Merlot for our program. Uh, when I started Pride, uh, I met the Richards across the street from Pride up on top of Spring Mountain. They were growing Merlot and selling their grapes. I started making wine from their grapes for Pride. We were planting Merlot at Pride. Um, and we weaned the two ranches. The Richards brand became uh, Paloma, another 2001. Merlot, which was my last vintage really officially there, was number one of Spectator's Top 100. I mean, so to say Merlot is an inferior grape, I mean, you know, get get hit, man. Go tell that to the people at Petrus. <laughs> I think they'll take you behind the chateau and show you where they store their guillotine <laughs> to change your, change your attitude. <laughs> yeah, great Merlot is always yeah. great, always has been great. great. And, you know, so my, my experience with it created the brands, again, Markham, Pride, Paloma, Switchback Ridge, Hourglass, Robert Foley. Um, I'm even, you know, consulting on some projects in New York State that use Merlot. So, um, yeah, I, I love Merlot. I mean, I, I just think that it's important that you that you grow perfect Merlot grapes and you'll get a fantastic wine. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm in the same boat and love Merlot. So when you first moved to Napa and you had mentioned there were like 24 wineries, so not much. It was more like farm town versus well-renowned wine region. Uh, but many people, and you've, you've talked about this briefly, point to the Judgment of Paris in 1976 that put Napa on the map. But I would love to have your firsthand take on the growth of Napa since then. People love Napa, but when you got there versus now, what what was that what was that growth like? What how how were people perceiving it then and what was the challenge to really get it to be taken more seriously? Obviously you had the judgment of Paris, but I'm sure you you saw all of the the growth that took place as a result of that. Yeah, well, I'm I think I think really the success of Napa Valley has been not so much the Paris tasting, although it certainly opened a lot of eyes, right? Um, but I think the that really what we attribute the success of the of the development of Napa Valley, which also includes the growth, it's been the passion of the people who have come here and you know fought the good fight and done the hard work, the heavy lifting. Um, when I moved to Napa Valley, it was, as you say, it was a farming community, um, a lot like where I grew up in the early days of uh, the region I grew up in before there were freeways in California. And so I would, you know, I, I rented a house in St. Helena for a couple of years until I could afford to buy one. And, you know, houses in those days were twenty twenty five thousand dollars you know. <laughs> it's been a long, long gone. But... Um, but it, it, it was, I loved it because, I mean, you would drive down Main Street and you knew everybody. You would recognize the, the pickup trucks from the guys who worked, you know, in the vineyards, the old Italian guys. You knew them. I mean, you knew their families. You fell in love with them. I mean, it was, it was a wonderful um, old USA kind of place. I mean, my mother would love to come up and visit because she grew up in, in a town like that where everybody knew each other and they're all kind of related. Um, the grocery store in St. Helena, you would call them and a high school kid would deliver a bag of groceries to your door. Um, they would have uh, a parade, a pet parade 
and you knew everybody and their pets. Um, Dr. Wood, who lived to be about 130 years old, they would have a Dr. Wood parade on Main Street. And in the parade would be all of the people that he had born. And these were young kids up to octogenarians. I mean, this, it was crazy. I mean, St. Helena was just, it was old town USA. Um, The tourism hadn't started. I mean, I'm sure you could go, everybody could go to Louis Martini and taste like 25, 30 different wines because, you know, he was easy, easy accessible and the wines were pretty good and it was right there. So, but, but there, there wasn't traffic. Um, So then Sometime around 82, I think, I, I'm, I'm guessing, but somewhere around 82, things started to change. People started to come here. And, and I remember on weekends, all of a sudden, you know, it was hard to get around town. And it was driving me kind of crazy because I, I don't like traffic, right? <laughs> but you know, it, the inconvenience <laughs> yeah. of like, I, how are you going to go to the market? You can't drive, you can't park, we're going to walk, you know, or ride your bicycle or something like that. But um, yeah, it just got more and more congested, particularly on weekends. I, I can remember traffic coming into St. Helena, northbound on 29, being backed up all the way to Yauntville. And then someone published some statistic in those days that there were more visitors to Napa Valley than to Disneyland. And it's like, wow, this has changed. And so, you know, it became, wine became fashionable. Um, millionaires wanted in on it. So they were buying properties and realizing after, you know, spending a couple of years, how not only can you make a small fortune in the wine business by starting with a large fortune, but also how much work there is involved because there's a ton of work. And, you know, the game plan doesn't end when you bottle the wine, then you got to go out and sell us stuff. I mean, so, um, yeah, it's, it, it just got more and more congested. Now, I had been coming up to Howell Mountain basically since I was in college because, you know, we'd come up here and, and hike the trails and go to the Pope Valley Garage and see the rattlesnakes in the bathtub and all, you know, the sort of things that at the way out west tourist attractions. But um, I moved up to Howell Mountain in the late, late 1980s while I was still uh, working with Markham because there's no traffic. And you know what? There's still no traffic. <laughs> But the Napa Valley, you know, it was a millionaire's playground in the 80s. And then, you know, in today's world, it's a billionaire's playground because the millionaires can't afford it. So. Yes. Well, and also Howl Mountain, no GPS signal. We talked about that briefly where, you know, people will come up and visit your winery and don't use the GPS because it's going to lose its signal. Like the other funny thing about Howl, it's not very funny. Uber will take you there, but they won't come pick you up. We had to give a few people rides back down to the valley because they were stuck. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So you've had, and you talked about Andre briefly, but you've had the incredible opportunity to spend time and discuss winemaking with Andre Chilichev, um, who's arguably the most important uh, post-prohibition winemaker in America. Can you share what that was like and how he impacted you and your winemaking maybe style? Absolutely. So my, my first introduction to Andre was, was, you know, actually from two different directions. First of all, Joe Heights, because Joe worked with Andre at the, in the lab at Beaulieu. And so whenever there were gatherings, important gatherings or tastings at Heights Cellars, Joe included the cellar crew and he included me and introduced me to those guys. And Andre at the time was also um, hired by Jordan Winery as a consultant. 
And their winemaker there uh, was one of my classmates at Davis, Rob, Rob Davis. So, you know, he was, Andre was a paid consultant. So I would go hang out with Rob and we talked to Andre. And then Andre, you know, was very interested in what I was going to do post Heights. And of course, that was, was Markham and spent time with me in the cellar there and, you know, gave me his two cents. I mean, I'm telling you, this he was an interesting guy. He was four feet 11, right? You don't know Andre's history. I'm, 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 I'm not going to tell it to you because it's just overwhelming. But I mean, he was, his platoon was machine gunned during the Crimean Wars, and he was left for dead. Crawled back to life, wound up at the Pasteur Institute where uh, um, he was educating himself in wine. And uh, you know, George de la Tour at Beaulieu found him and brought him over. I think it was in 1938 to run the lab at BV. But on Andre's. He, you know, these eyebrows that a, a bird could nest in. He was always smoking a cigarette. He had this incredible palate and the anecdotes he would come up with, you know. Um, he, he, he would say things that you would think, what a perspective that is. That's, you know, I, I just, if people ask if you could spend more time with anybody that you can't, who would it be? And what well, Andre would be one of them for sure. But uh, he'd be right at the top of the list. But you know, basically through through Joe Heights and through Rob, I got to know Rob Davis. I got to know Andre Chelichev. And Andre and I tasted wines um, from the 1982 vintage. Um, so this would have been, I, I guess, late 83. And he, I said, Andre, I've got four punches of this. Uh, I want you to. Uh, to taste this wine. He just finished giving me his, his dissertation on, you know, Rob has to make wines up in Anderson Valley, in, sorry, in Alexander Valley for Tom Jordan's palate. And Tom Jordan wants French style wines and the vineyards up there can do that. He says, but you're working with these Yauntville and Oakville vineyards that Andre was very familiar with. The Van Lobensal's vineyard is, that now was, uh, was owned by Markham. And he said, it is your duty to let the vineyard tell you how to make the wine. It is your duty to understand its terroir and its expression. You could make a wine like Rob has to make out of this vineyard, but he could not possibly make a wine like you can make from this vineyard. So you need to let the vineyard be your teacher. So he riveted me on the importance of, of getting things right in the vineyard and, and um, not only just your farming techniques, but your understanding of the balances that go into into how you grow perfect fruit. But we tasted this wine out of punchin. I had four punchins, and I said, I don't know what to do with it. It was Cabernet Franc. And Andre took a sip, and his eyebrows shot up, and he started dancing around the glass, and he goes, you have the real Cabernet Franc. And I said, tell me. And he says, well, most of the Cabernet Franc in California, again, this is the early 1980s, it's not the real Franc. It's something else. And I said, he said, where did you get these cuttings? And I told him, this nursery in Santa Million. And uh, he goes, oh, I know those guys. They, they, would not, uh, they would not do you a disservice. These are good. What are you going to do with it? And I said, I was hoping you would tell me what to do with it. And he said, I will tell you nothing. He says, if you're going to blend with it, be careful because its character will grow. So if you think 6% it makes your blend perfect, add 3% because that character will grow after you blend it. He said, but if you want to do the noble thing and make a varietal wine out of it, treat it like a woman. And it's like, <laughs> I'm 24 years old trying to figure out what he's talking about. And he says, give it all the attention it needs and deserves and it will treat you right. But as soon as you turn your back, it will stab you. <laughs> well, I, you know, at, 
at Markham, we never did anything with the franc. You know, we blended it away into various blends. And then, you know, 15 years later, I left and went to work. We actually met Jim Pride and, and we developed our relationship. And then we started Pride Mountain Vineyards in the early 90s. But the first vineyard I saw when I pulled onto the property was a terrace of Cabernet Franc. And, uh, you know, Jim Pride said, if you don't want to mess with it, you can pull it out. You can plant, you know, giving you the free free reign on this. You can pull it out and replant whatever you want. I said, no, the vineyard looks healthy and it's only a couple of acres. Let's see what we can do with it. Well, a few years later, the, the Pride Cabernet Franc took, you know, best of show at a 3000 wine tasting from the, the international tasters guild. And the, the, the grand prize was this etched glass plaque. It was the Andre Chelichev award. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, Andre's up there looking down saying, you got it right. But as soon as you turn your back, <laughs> yeah, he was a character, quite a character. Rob Davis is the guy who should really write a book. If he, if he's not working on it already, he should write a book about the witticisms and anecdotes of Andre Shelachev because he had a, he had a whole ton of it, a lot more than probably the rest of us. If Rob can remember to do that. <laughs> yes, definitely. No, that's great advice, and I'm so glad you didn't rip that up because I have had the the Pride Cab Franc, and it is it's a Cab Franc actually is my favorite varietal, and it's just phenomenal. Yeah. So mountain fruit, that's, that's part of the key there. But, uh, um, you know, I, I think if you haven't had the trespass cap wrong, give that one a shot. Oh, I definitely will. So that you spent about 15 years at Markham as the founding winemaker, and then you went to pride right after. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, so yeah, Markham was an interesting ride. So Bruce Markham bought the place and then we started the winery in the seventies and 10 years later, he sold it. Uh, so I guess that would have been about 80, 87. He sold it to a large Japanese corporation who wanted to develop it and they wanted to make other wines for export and all that. Um, and so we went through about a five-year uh, process of designing and building that the facility that you see today. The facility that was there before looks nothing like it. And um, I could send you a picture. You would not believe what it used to look like. But... You know, it was uh, it was tacked together, old you know, used used uh, corrugated um, steel siding that was you know had been taken down somewhere else and then put back up. So there were there were nail holes everywhere. It was full of bats and you know old antiquated equipment. But but uh, so yeah, we we gutted a couple of cellars. We maintained a couple of the old cellars. There were there were sixty thousand gallon redwood tanks that had been erected, taken down, and then re-erected there. So, you know, it was a holding plant for United Vintners. And, you know, we basically, we we started Markham in a couple of cellars. There were like six cellars there. We used two of them for Markham. The other ones, we, we continued to um, rent the space to United Vintners. So basically, you know, wine would come down from Italian Swiss Colony and go into that facility for holding until there was room at the distillers because it was spoiled stuff. But, you know, it was some sort of, cash flow for us in the early days of Markham. But so for the first 10 years, we developed a brand to really, there were two of us doing all the seller work, myself and my seller assistant. And then um, um, when it sold to the Japanese, they, they had the capital. And so we built this modern facility and suddenly I had a Japanese tutor and suddenly we had a fax machine. I had no idea what a fax machine was before that. And then 
and suddenly I'm going to business meetings in Tokyo. And, you know, it was a remarkable experience, but all of a sudden I was in, you know, the corporate life in a suit and tie, and this was not, you know, who I am. I'm still kind of a country bumpkin. I won't even tell you how I'm dressed right now, but it, <laughs> you know, I, I was, uh, you know, completed the construction project on time and under budget. And I decided it was time to just look around for something else. So I, I resigned and, you know, talk to everybody I knew in the industry. I said, if you hear anything interesting, I'm figuring it'll take six months off. I had a baby girl, I had a, you know, a boy in the oven and wanted to spend some time, you know, with the young family. And, uh, I think maybe 48 hours passed and I got a phone call from, um, first from Nils Vangi, who told me that, um, uh, there was a winery down in Napa that needed some help with production and marketing. I could probably help them as a consultant. And then I got a phone call from a dear friend who's a distributor in New York, New York uh, State. And he said, I just met this guy who bought some property up on the top of Spring Mountain. And he doesn't seem to know what to do with it, but he's a passionate guy. And his name's James Pride. So, you know, I called up Dr. Pride and um, we had our first meeting on a drizzly November 1992 uh, morning up there. And you know, he was interested in what I was seeing he, because, you know, he, he didn't really know. I mean, he'd grown up in farming, but Sacramento Valley orchard and rice and didn't really know um, about vineyard, um, but uh, was was definitely he was an educator to the dental industry. So he was a you know, smart guy paying a lot of attention. And, and he said, well, we have all these different slopes. And I said, yes, you do. But I said, look at these different soils. You have a white soil over here. You have a red soil over there. You have a yellow soil over there. This one's got gravel in it. That one looks got, it's got clay in it. And he says, what's soil got to do with it? And I said, well, you know, the relationship of the grapevine with the soil that it's growing in will affect the character of the wine. And this is the concept of terroir. And he looked at me with this big toothy grin and he said, hell man, I was a rice grower. We don't, didn't even use the dirt. <laughs> we grew rice in the water. And I said, yeah, this is different. And then when the first Pride Wines came out, Jim gave me a big hug and he said, nobody ever told me I grew a good bag of rice. <laughs> and he, got, and he never got 90 points on a bag of rice. So anyway, yeah, that was that was how that whole thing happened. It was uh, basically I kind of worked for the Prides as a consultant for the first six months. And then Jim just said, you know, I can't really afford you, but my other company can. And I don't, you know, I, I, I feel serious that you and I can work together. So. We did. I mean, Pride was a great learning experience for me because, you know, in the in the Markham days, there was more compartmentalization. I had less to do with, with, with the vineyard operations and everything to do with the winery operations. But we had you know a separate vineyard management company. Um, but at Pride, you had to do everything. In fact, I was the only employee up there. And we didn't have a winery building. We had uh, some old vineyard that needed to be replanted and some healthy vineyard that's still healthy to this day. But... Uh, the the dissimilarity of mountain farming and valley floor farming. I mean, it's first thing you notice is there's slopes. It's dangerous when you drive equipment on slopes. You have to be careful, right? Down the valley floor, everything's kind of flat. But uh, the variation in the soils, um, soil depth, soil type, uh, drainage, source sink relation of where the silt starts and where it goes, weathered soils versus heavier soils. Water follows the same path, uh, and cold air follows the same path. It collects down in the hollows and it spills off the upper. So, you know, that's going to affect all that's going to affect ripening and 
you know, the thought that goes into the vineyard. So I had to re- relearn everything. And I remember John Kongsgaard, who was a classmate of mine at Davis and still uh, still a dear friend, lived next door to the Pride property. And he goes, man, you're, you're going to you're gonna learn <laughs> that mountain fruit is so much different, but it's so much better. And he was right. Absolutely. Yeah. So Hell Mountain is one of my favorite AVAs within Napa. And I'm curious how you would describe the difference even between Howell and Mount Veter and Spring Mountain. And also, generally speaking, what differences do you see in mountain fruit versus the valley floor? Yeah, the differences are obvious. Um, So good question for me. Um, I have, you know, 15 years of uh, farming and uh, winemaking on Spring Mountain in the Pride Paloma days. Um, to this day, Robert Foley has vineyard on Howl Mountain um, and on Mount Beater and Atlas Peak. So, um, you know, Napa Valley is a is a skinny coastal valley that's bordered on the west side by the Mayakamas Mountain Range, and then on the inland side, the east side, by the Vaca Range. Um, so the Vaca Range has the features of Howell Mountain to the north and Atlas Peak to the south, uh, Pritchard Hill in between. Um, the Mayakamas Range has Diamond Mountain to the north, uh, Spring Mountain, and then a Mount Veter to the further south. So it's the Mayakamas Range is closer, one mountain range, one valley, you know, river valley system closer to the ocean. Howell Mountain. Um, and the Vaca Range is one um, coastal valley system closer to the Central Valley. So that's further inland. So consequently, there's a greater incidence of drier air that happens up on uh, Howell Mountain um, and a greater incidence of inundated fog that spills over the Mayakamas Range on the west side. The soil types are different. Um, there are similarities. We all, we all have you know, some volcanic tuff and we all have some uh, Aiken stony loam which are both of which make beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon. But there's more volcanic uh, on Howell Mountain than there is on uh, uh, the west side. So these mountain ranges are forming as subduction occurs. So the Pacific, Pacific plate is slipping underneath the North American plate and lifting it up. And as it does, it churns these old, what they call Sonoma volcanics, with uh, ocean bottom. So you get kind of a, a combination. But being... Further inland, there's more of the volcanics here, and it gets warmer. Um, so Howl Mountain, you know, and, and uh, this side of the valley, especially up valley, um, we see warm mornings, and then during midday, uh, it's maybe eight to ten degrees cooler up here than down in the valley where the heat gets trapped. So you know, mountain fruit versus valley floor fruit, the whole, the whole cycle of vineyard life, which, you know, we, we can start sort of arbitrarily at bud break, you know, at the dormant season's over, the buds come out. They come out in the valley two weeks, sometimes three weeks before the mountains. So the mountains have a later cycle. Okay. So that, that means the growing season, the flowering, the set, the ripening, and ultimately harvest all get pushed later. So the mountain fruit um, where, where's the valley floor fruit is harvested typically in se- September and wraps up in early October. The mountain fruit starts in October and wraps up in early November. So the main difference there is that you are picking grapes in the valley in summer weather patterns, hot days and warm to cooler nights. The mountains, 
warm days, you know, and sometimes cold nights, some down, sometimes down a low forties or thirties before you're actually picking the amount of fruit. So, so that, that those la- the last 10 yards of ripening to the goal line, mountain fruit is going real slow. The respiration is, is it comes to a, almost a stop. Whereas in the valley, you, you know, the respiration is, is pumping while you're picking grapes. Well, respiration is important because that's how acid is lost. So mountain fruit hangs onto its acidity. It's got more structure. Um, because we're at 2,000 feet elevation on these ridges, um, there's just more exposure. There's more exposure to ultraviolet. There's more exposure to wind currents. So the, the skins tend to be tougher and thicker. And uh, so what do we extract from the skins? Color, flavor, aroma, <laughs> texture, kind of the center of our universe. So like like those old coffee commercials for Folgers, Mrs. Olson, Mountain Grown is the richest kind. She was right. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. So when you say respiration, most people think like breathing. What what do you mean by respiration when you're talking about grapes? Yeah. So vines, vines respire and their fruit respire. I mean, the, the air movement through the lenticels. And when that happens, acidity drops. I mean, that's the key here is is because it's warm. Um, in the warmer, warmer climates, there's more respiration, there's less acidity in the fruit, the pHs go up. And so the wine is not as healthy. I mean, so acid is what this is all about. Um, you know, it is the building block of longevity in wine. I mean, red wines have other things that help them like these, these extractable pigments, we call them polyphenols and tannins and things like that. But those are, those are antioxidant and will help wines age. But acid is the key. And it's like in white wines, it's the only the only building block for longevity, which is why some of the French wines age so beautifully have, have higher acid. But uh, um, that's that's you know what I'm talking about here. Um, the other thing that I, I should point out, a d- big difference between mountain-grown fruit and valley floor fruit is what if you drive around the Napa Valley, what are the vineyards surrounded by? They're surrounded by vineyards, right? You go up to the mountains, the mountain vineyards are surrounded by forests. Mm-hmm. And what's important here harkens back to something I mentioned about, you know, my early exposure to Martha's Vineyard with that eucalyptus stand next to the vineyard that gave a menthol character to the wine. The forests are aromatic. So the forests of um, Howl Mountain are largely pine forest or mixture of pine and fir. Uh, that forest smells a certain way. Uh, on Mount Veter, the forests are bay laurel. That has a totally different aromatic. And so, you know, these aromas of the of the surrounding forests contribute to the personality of the fruit and the wine. And you can smell it. And people always remark, where does the spiciness come from? I mean, I had, one of these guys came up and a friend, fellow winemaker came up to me. It's like, what are you guys doing in your in your Merlot topping the barrels with cocoa puffs? There's all this chocolate flavor. And I said, Bruce, come out here and test Check out, check this out. So we went in the vineyard. He bites into one of the grapes, almost right. He goes, "God, it's in the fruit." I said, "That's right. That's that's the terroir. That's the magic. You know, you can't can't plan for that. But boy, you better discover it because it's 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 fun. It's magic. It is. So, with over forty years of winemaking experience in Napa, what what would you say has there been? Well, one, the most challenging. Um, thing to overcome or to learn in in winemaking and also the most challenging vintage because like you said you're you're trying to let the fruit speak to you but the fruit is different every year um 
based off of so many different things, was there a most challenging vintage that you had to, to learn to adapt to? Absolutely. Hands down, 1998 was the most challenging vintage. I'm, the, for anybody I know who's been in the, in the business as long as I have, so I'm going in my 44th vintage this year, which I'm very excited about, but um, they would all say the same thing. 1998 was something, due to weather patterns, it was something that we just did not recognize. There were there were other vintages that were weird. Um, I think eighty. Let me think about this. Eight was it eighty three or eighty seven? No, I think it was eighty seven. Um, there was so little primary fruit. We actually picked the second crop on some vineyards because there was more second crop than there was primary fruit, which is crazy. And it, you know, as long as you waited long enough, it made good wine. But nineteen ninety eight was the weird year because, you know, it was the it was the year where the sun never came out. I mean, it was like August and September were, you know, just fog every day and, and cool temperatures. And, you know, winemakers are not used to running in, into each other during harvest because you're busy, right? And, I, and I'm at the hardware store and I run to John Williams yeah. and he was another winemaker up on Spring Mountain. And he says, have you picked your cab yet? And I said, no, have you? And he goes, no, we're actually rolling Mylar out in, into the vin, vine rows to try to get some reflective heat or sun because and i said yeah it's just i i said john have you ever picked the grapes off of vines that had already lost their leaves and he goes yeah i think i did that once and i said how'd that turn out he said it turned out pretty good and you know at paloma that year we picked we picked their cabin and there wasn't a leaf left on the vineyard and it it took that long for the grapes to actually soften and for the seeds to ripen to where the phenolic development in the skins was truly ripe. And the wines turned out great. The Pride wines turned out great. The Robert Foley wines turned out great. Uh, Switchback Ridge, everybody up, well, I guess we hadn't done Switchback Ridge yet. We did Hourglass. So those wines all turned out great. But the thing that I learned and that we all collectively learned from 98, if you were involved in growing grapes to make wine in Napa Valley was it's not the sun that ripens the grapes. The sun drives the sugar machine. What ripens grapes is time. And boy, that taught us to be patient. I mean, if you didn't have any patience in the 98 vintage, um, you could fall off the truck. But uh, that's what it took. And, and you know, I, I think John and I subsequently, John Williams and I subsequently talked about that. It's like, you know, these wines have actually turned out really, really good. And the press, meanwhile, was writing about how great 97 was. And we're scratching our heads because we had 97 in the, in the barrel. We had 98 in the barrel. I said, our 98s are way better. And they had tr the press had trashed the 98 finish. Like, okay, clearly these, these guys are going to learn something subsequently too. Because 97 <laughs> was flashy. It was hot. It was early. You know, all the grapes were ripe at one time. There was no time to get them all in in time. So a lot of there was a lot of overripeness. Whereas 98, if you waited and waited and waited, and we did pick some grapes in December. So I'm talking about really waiting. The wines had structure to last. So, you know, you just you just live and learn. But uh, that was the one. That 98 was the vintage. Did the critics ever come around on that one? <laughs> yes. Yes. We We saw a bunch of them go, oh, my gosh, you know. What were we thinking? And I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but one of the kingpins called me up and he said, you know, these, I t went through and tasted a bunch of 97s after they had 10 years. And he goes, you know, they're not, they're starting to sag a little bit. And I said, yeah, they were showing really good right out of the blocks. But we all knew that there just wasn't enough structure. So, you know, 
it's a flash in the pan. And I said, have you, wait till these 98s have like 15 years. They're going to be thoroughbreds. And they are. I mean, we've tasted our 98 Claret, which is 80% cab, 40% Merlot. And it's still drinking like, you know, beauty. It hasn't peaked. It hasn't gone over any kind of hill. So then on the flip side of things, if you had to choose your favorite vintage, what would it be and why? Well, I, I think 2001 in the, it's, I'm speaking in the big picture here, not, not just at, you know, what I was doing or, you know, the vineyards or, or brands that I was working with in 2001, but in the big picture, 01 was great because nobody could screw it up. So there were successes in every winery. Everybody was happy. And then when, when the press wrote about it, they just exuded. It was like this, these wines are phenomenal. And then, you know, bottom line here is the consumer could not find a bad bottle of wine, which, you know, it was happiness from beginning to end. That's to me what a great vintage is. I mean, it's it, a great vintage is not something that's great for me. It's, it's something that's great for everybody. And, uh, and 2001 was just one of those years where it all kind of worked for everybody. Um, I will tell you, though, that the last several ha- vintages have been awesome. And I literally came to talk to you today from working with the 2018s, which we're going to be bottling two weeks time. So, you know, I'm finished bringing them out of barrel I'm finished blending them um, and I'm letting them rest until we put them through the bottling line but uh, 18 follows 17 you know and if you didn't get smoked with a fire 17 was awesome 16 and then i look at 19 and it's you know they're they're primal but they're delicious and they have you know another year to go but um you know i feel like we've been blessed Absolutely. Such an amazing area. Um, So you're known by many as the god of Cabernet. But going back to your aha moment, and we discussed this briefly, but I just want to get a little more in depth with it. When you first tried the Charbono, can you describe like what are some of the characteristics that people would be looking for in that glass of wine? Charbonneau is an unusual grape, first of all. Um, you know, so you're going to start start with the grapes. They're delicious because they're low acid. So, I mean, you can eat them and it's like, you know, spoonful of jelly. It's just delicious. But um, And they have that crazy flavor profile that, that's like a, a nutty, a wood nuttiness, but it's in the grape skin. And it goes beautifully along with these nice, big, ripe, jelly, wild berry jelly flavors. Um, the, but, but as a grape variety, it's the only Vitus vinifera grape variety that I'm aware of, and certainly that I've ever worked with, that in its ripening stops accumulating sugar. So we talk about degrees bricks, um, which is percent sugar, B-R-I-X, that's percent sugar by weight. So you, you know, sort of track that as the fruit ripens, the sugar level goes up, the degrees bricks goes up. And, you know, somewhere in the 20s, you start looking for other signs of ripeness. But uh, in, in most grape varieties, it'll just keep going up and up and up and up. And it'll go maybe at 25 or 30. Now, that's very sweet and that's your alcohol potential. So you have to be careful because you don't want to make a wine that's out of balance because there's too much alcohol. But, you know, typically we're picking ripe Cabernet you know, around 25 bricks, maybe 26 bricks. Charbono hits 22 and stops. It doesn't stop ripening, but it stops accumulating sugar. So there's there's something else you need to be looking at to f- try to figure out when, when to pick it. So let's say, for example, October 5th, it hits 22 bricks. 
you might not pick that until October 25th because you're waiting for the seeds to darken, the fruit to soften, the phenolic development to give you this nice black wine because it's really, really dark. And your net result is going to be a ripe wine that's alcohol is maybe in the mid-12s. So that sets it apart from pretty much every other, you know, California red wine grape that I'm aware of, and certainly in Napa Valley, that you can get such a ripe character in a wine that has low alcohol. So that being said, the acid in it shows more. It's not that there's higher acid. It's just that it's not balanced out by high alcohol. So there's a nice tangy acidity to Charbonneau. And, you know, we're foodies. I mean, I think a lot of us winemakers are. I mean, so we make wines that go with the foods we like to eat. And I mean, I'll I'll talk to you all day long about different cuts of beef and the different cabs that we make from all the different ABAs where we grow it. The bigger ones with the fattier meat and the leaner ones with the fillets. But Charbonneau just goes with food that Cabernet doesn't go with. I mean, it supports spices. It supports Asian cuisine. It supports uh, Mexican cuisine. We had it paired by a chef. It was his input, not ours. We provided the wine, but it, this was in Charleston uh, for their wine and food festival in 2007. And he paired our Charbonneau with a, he served a plank. And on one side, uh, he had seared foie gras. On the other side, he had drawn buttered lobster tail. And the Charbonneau paired with each of those beautifully. So now we're talking about red wine and fish. You know, Josh Wesson's old thing. This is a perfect wine to take, you know, outside of the box. So... Charbonneau is, you know, it's just, uh, it's very food versatile, you know, in, in parts of the United States where they're very proud of their barbecue, you know, in the South, Charbonneau just, just sings with good barbecue. Love that. You also make a really great Pinot Noir from a very specific place in Carneros. How did your travels to France influence your Pinot winemaking style as well? Or, um, I guess, what sort of influence did it have on it? Well, so, you know, Pinot, Pinot is a lure to all winemakers because it's the most difficult grape to work with. It's the easiest wine to screw up. So, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate challenge. Um, I am fortunate um, in the wine industry having been raised by a French-speaking mother, so I'm fluent in French. And um, in my early days, not the days that I worked for Heights, but during the days when we were starting Markham, uh, Bruce Markham allowed me to go, you know, to France regularly to, uh, to study and to learn and to inter- interface not only with the academics at, you know, in Bordeaux and Paris, but also uh, you know, with the winemaking people and ultimately the nursery people and with Dr. Bubals, uh, who was running the Montpellier research station, viticultural research station south of France. So um, you know, we, we brought cuttings over. We had this old Gamay Beaujolais vineyard that would, had been planted in the 30s. Who knew where those cuttings came from? But they were, they were Pinot Noir cuttings. And we were making wine out of it. And, uh, and we brought these cuttings back from the, um, the Denis Boubal's Dijon selections and planted them in Oak, Oak Knoll in the south, southern part of Napa Valley and made Pinot from that. But, you know, the, the Markham team really, and there, there weren't many of us, but it was like, you know, Cabernet was king and we were making a rock and cab and we'd made a success story out of Merlot. It's like this Pinot, are we going to keep doing it just because Bob's interested in it? And so, you know, I think the wines kind of got stuck away in warehouse and the vineyard ultimately got pulled out and planted to more successful programs that we were having um, from that region. So those would have been Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. 
but one of the marketing guys about, I don't know, 12 years later, he said, when was the last time you had one of those pinots you made? And I said, you know, I don't know. I can't remember. It's been years and years. And he says, it's, it's freaking burgundy, man. I was like, really? I said, I, I have no idea. I kind of lost track of that. But um, when I when I went to work for um, with with the Prides and with the Richards at Paloma, I also met the Gantners who live in the same neighborhood up on Spring Mountain. And they said, we have so much fun with you. Would you make our wine for us? And I said, I'd love to. You know, let's talk about it. And I knew that I knew what they were doing. I knew the Gantners had the old schoolhouse vineyard, which I was aware of back, you know, in the 70s. And um, so they grow Pinot Noir and then they have a field blend that they make a, a you know, red table wine out of with a proprietary name. But the Pinot was fabulous. And, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of a long story, but, you know, it's interesting because John Gantner's father, who was John Gantner, the elder, was good friends with John Daniels back in the 1940s. And, and Daniels had planted Pinot out in front of Engelmuck. And Andres... Andre, who was over at Beaulieu, he said, you know, don't plant Pinot here. It's too hot. You know, plant it someplace cooler. Plant Cabernet here. So so John um, Daniels, who owned uh, Inglenook, and John Gantner, the elder, uh, uprooted the vines and transplanted them to this little block up on Spring Mountain. And the wine, the first vintage was 19... So that was in 1953. The first vintage was 1957. And I think it was made at uh, what's now Stony Hill. But you know, the cuttings had come from Domaine Romani Conti. So, you know, there was some real pedigree here. And so, you know, here's the Gantners. Hey, we have so much fun. Would you make our wine? I said, heck yeah, I'll make your wine. So all the years I was up at Pride, I made the schoolhouse wines. And I remember that 98 vintage, which was so cool. The wine was phenomenal. We had one barrel of it. I mean, that was all there was. But, you know, it was magic. And when I, um, when I left Pride, you know, they said, would you still make a wine? I said, you know, I just, I, I want to get over this commute because I've been commuting for 15 years from where I live on, on Howl Mountain, across the valley, up to the top of Spring Mountain back. You know, it's just a lot of driving up and down and up and down. And the lady who took my position at Pride had a lot of uh, experience with Pinot. She's a great winemaker, Sally Johnson. So I said, you'd be in great hands with her. So anyway, my friends and family, what are you going to do for Pinot? And I said, I'm not going to make Pinot. I mean, if, unless I find a great vineyard, I'm, I can't make I can't make great Pinot out of a good vineyard. I have to have a great vineyard, and a great, great, and that, given that I don't screw it up, right? So um, anyway, I was introduced to Lee Hudson, and he had this little tiny block down in Carneros, and um, offered me the fruit. And so we went into the Pinot Robert Foley Pinot Vineyard from the Hudson Vineyard in 2010, and so that's our grape source, and it's a beautiful little vineyard, little block. It doesn't make a lot of wine, um, but um, it's about half and half a Pomard clone and the UC Davis clone. And the Davis clone gives us the, this all this nice depth of color, and uh, the Pomard clone gives us this nice uh, acidity. So we age it in the best barrels. I call my old friends from the from the seventies in in uh, Bone. I said, "You guys remember me? I mean, the guys were kind of like old hippies. Do you remember me?" And they go, "Yeah, we remember you. Like a California guy who knows how to speak French without an accent." And I said, "Yeah, well, I'm going to start making Pinot." You know. And they said, "Oh, yeah, we got barrels for you." So you know, I got the best of the best that I could for the Pinot program. But uh, yeah, I you know, I love Pinot. I mean, I just I, I could drink Pinot all day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
What is it about a Carneros in in particular that makes it so great for for Pinot growing? So you know, most of Carneros. For those of you who don't know about it, Carneros is is uh, the southern end of both Napa and uh, Sonoma County. So it's south. Let me get this right: southwest Napa County and southeast Sonoma County, where they join together, and. So, you know, in the old days, I, mean, I remember the area is mostly cattle because they were heavy clay soils. And then, you know, vineyards started popping up because you can grow um, wine grapes that don't need to ripen. So they're talking about wine grapes for sparkling wine down there. So it's cooler. Um, there's a lot of clay soil. Again, you're not trying to ripen grapes for sparkling wine. You're picking them at a low sugar and you don't want, um, you know, a whole lot of flavor because the flavor is going to come from the method champenoise and making the wine. But but there are some areas where uh, grapes for still wine can ripen and where you can get good expression. Um, in this Hudson Vineyard, there's, I mean, it's on the what I call the High Carnero, so it's uphill from the, the Napa Carneros Highway, so further away from uh, the San Pablo Bay, and on the soils that are the sort of the tail end of the Mayacamas Mountain Range. So there's actually some volcanic tuff in the soils, well drained, and this is key. So whereas most of Carneros is clay, which is not well drained. Uh, these upper soils uh, have the drainage it takes to get the kind of character to make still wines. So that's the magic of, of that area. And, you know, you just have to find those little, those little places, good vineyard people find them. Absolutely. One of the key things you discuss is that you're a wine grower, not a wine maker. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I think I love that. But what do you mean by that? So, um, my, you know, my, my practice and not my theory, it's a practice of my life is that, you know, you can make wine out of grapes, anybody can make wine out of grapes, but, um, how do you guarantee that the wine is the best possible effort? Well, you have to check yourself. I mean, your attention to detail matters. And of course your experience is huge. Um, there are things that I, I can do out of reflex that other winemakers who don't have as much, as much experience would have to, you know, make a science project out of, but you know, you, you learn. And one of the things you learn is that, that if you have fantastic fruit, it's hard to screw it up. And so what you really want to do is make sure that you grow the best commodity to start with. So what we do is we, we, and I just say myself, but, I work with a, a couple of very key uh, vineyard manager people, um, uh, Peter Nissen, who I've known since I was in my 20s, and Hector Lopez, I've known since he was in his 20s, and Hector works with a lot of vineyards um, that, I, uh, that I'm farming these days. But Hector found me in, in the early days at Pride. He was working for a vineyard management company. He says, I love your approach to this. And I said, talk to me. And he said, well... You look at a vineyard and you see the variation and you see it in how the fruit develops. You see it in in the leaf color changes, you know, after harvest in the fall. Um, You bother to understand how maybe a 10 acre vineyard can have four distinctly different zones. And then you flag those zones off and you make a wine out of it. 
and then you wait for the next zone to ripen and you flag that up. He says a lot of the vineyard managers will go through and they'll try to balance it. Well, this area is ahead of the other area, so let's just water it more because they want to make an average. And I said, this is how you make average wine. How you make best wine is to define an area and make the best possible QA from that area and then wait for the rest. So you bother to take the time. He said, I love that. I would love to work with you. And I said, well, you know, I've got a vineyard up in Calistoga that, you know, the guy who's been farming it is old and looks looking for a replacement. So that's how Hector and I started working together. And so now he's doing, you know, basically all of the ranches that we, that we produce fruit from. And we talk daily. I mean, we get weather reports every 10 minutes because we listen to CBS radio, traffic, traffic and weather together on the eights, right? So, so we're paying attention to that and we're talking about it, like how it's, how it's going to change. We're going into heat spell. What are we going to do? I mean, then that's that's a current event because it's going to be hot today. It's going to be hotter in Pistol tomorrow. So we're going to give them a little water and keep them up, keep them pumped. You know, we're through Verizon now so we can, um, we can you know, give these vines enough water to get them going, keep their stamina up. But we talk about, you know, we talk about what it takes to grow perfect fruit so that when it comes into the winery, the operations are basic. I mean, you're just basically going to crush the grapes, ferment the grapes, you know, press them off, settle them, and then barrel age them and, and do that, you know, the way that you do that, the way that you've been taught and the way that you've learned over time. But you need to start with perfect fruit, and that means balancing the vineyard. So we talk about balance. We talk about uh, water and, and water stress, nutrition, nutritional stress. Uh, we talk about sunlight and shade balances, air movement, positioning of fruit, crop levels, um, and you know the timing of all these operations, leafing and tucking and tying. Um, they're all of paramount paramount importance and it's not something you just do and walk away. Okay. We balance the vineyard. We're done. No, you're not because <laughs> it's growing. <laughs> so you have to maintain the balance and work with what mother nature gives you and what the vineyard <laughs> teaches you. So that's, that's the distinction. I mean, for me, the winemaking part of it um, is facilitated by the work, the heavy work and, and paying attention to detail out there in the field that it takes. Go out and wear out your shoes, you know, wear out your truck tires and your brake pads and get from mountaintop to mountaintop and, and go look at this stuff because you don't want to miss crucial steps. So, you know, we dance with Mother Nature and Mother Nature steps on toes occasionally. So <laughs> that's all right. That's what we're in it for. I think that's great, though, because it's like an the average person and myself included would assume that the winemaking portion, it would be the most important, but like you said, you're just, you're crushing the grapes, but there's so much more that goes into it. Cause you're dealing with something that's alive. You're dealing with the vineyard speaking to you. And I think that that's just incredible and something that we should think about more when we're enjoying these nice wines is just the, it's not just the making it's, like you said, every day being out in it, wearing your shoes out, letting the vineyard speak to you and not just trying to make the average. It's the difference between a chef and a cook, isn't it? A cook can cook food, but a chef understands the importance of the ingredients and their <laughs> sources. And, you know, if you're going to make something great, you want to start with great ingredients, right? 
hundred percent. So I know we're running a little bit low on time, but I, one last question. Wine isn't your only passion. Music has played a vital role in your life. Can you talk about your band a little bit? And do you see any synergies between the art of wine and music? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, I, 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 I was playing music when I was five and then, you know, my parents said, Oh, you're gifted. You're interested. And I've got private lessons and studied music and I played it all my life, you know, and I had an electric guitar when the Beatles came to the United States and I was like, what you, oh, they're having fun. Let's get a garage band. So, I mean, I grew up in an area in the East Bay where there was a lot of music and uh, I got to know my bandmates today, um, back then, back, you know, in the 1960s and somehow we've all managed to survive. And I'm, you know, I, I know Guitar World magazine or Guitar Aficionado magazine did an article on me, and I said basically I'm I'm a guitar player who got a really good day job. <laughs> but but yeah, I've, I've I've kept it up. I keep it up. The band, you know, we, there's no gigs right now with the virus and stuff going around. But um, we've been playing regularly. We record. I write um, our material, and I play guitar and sing. Um, with a couple of uh, outstanding musicians, Michael Green on drums and Tom Suchek on keyboards, some outstanding uh, Bay Area uh, musicians. And um, for me, you know, what we do in, in, in writing is we're all original band. So what we do in writing material and arranging it together and then, and then recording it is it's all the same kind of sensitivities and sensibilities that go into winding it's just with different senses and you know, we're balancing sounds for texture and and frequencies and things and and then the passion that goes into the story behind the song and then how the music and and the vocals uh bring that out it's all kind of the same as balancing the texture of wine and and uh, and flavors and aromas it's uh it's for me, it's inseparable. I mean, I, I the same, I use the same part of my brain. I just use different sensors, but, uh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. This was what happened in 2000. Um, so, you know, at pride, I was the only employee, right. For many, many years. And then we started to build a winery and then we needed to get, you know, an accountant and we needed, you know, somebody to do a tasting room and all this. And I, they were, they were, doing a job interviews for an assistant to the CFO. So they were looking for an accountant and I walked through the door that comes out of the cellar into the shared office space. And I pulled the door open. I walked right into the face of this woman who took my breath away. And I went, ah, and she went, ah. And I said, you must be looking for the office. She says, I am. And I said, it's that way. And so she had gone through the wrong doorway. And I watched every step she took as she walked away from me. Anyway, that was Kelly Kehoe uh, coming to interview for the position at Pride, which they they gave her. I mean, she, suddenly I'm having a lot of difficulty talking, which is not normally a problem for me. But blah blah blah, it's like I didn't realize she was having the same pro- problem, and so we fell in love, and uh, and so that was in 2001, and then in. 2004, Jim Pride passed away. And then in 2005, Kelly and I were married up at Pride. And then I stole her away to run Robert Foley Vineyards. And uh, in 06, she stole me away from Pride to be the full-time winemaker for her. So Kelly runs Robert Foley Vineyards. She's the business manager. She's doing what her education is in, which is in economics and you know business management. I'm doing what I was educated in, which is grape farming and winemaking. Uh, she's got one assistant, Shannon, who teaches us how to operate computers. 
Jalen's got a degree in, in computer science and marketing. So that's the whole Robert Foley team right there. And of course, Hector, our vineyard manager, who is an independent contractor, but uh, that's it. I mean, so the wines that, you know, we talked about today that we make, uh, these are hand, hand grown, hand made, hand crafted. And, uh, I think that the three of us cover production, maintenance, government compliance, accounting, sales, marketing, feed the cats. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's great. I love what you guys are doing up there and your wines are just absolutely incredible. So I highly recommend people try them because we're just blown away. It's phenomenal what you're doing. Thank you. Come up and see us sometime. I mean, you know, we're we're on the top of Howell Mountain. There's, like I said, there's no tourists up here. It takes a little work to find. And, you know, we, we've, we've not, we haven't lost anybody, but we've misplaced quite a few because uh, the GPS and the cell phones kind of drop out up here. But, you know, we're findable. We have a website, robertfoleyvineyards.com. And, um, you know, by appointment, you can uh, come up and meet one of the three of us or maybe all three of us given the day and uh, check it out. I mean, it's a little tiny mon pa operation. Absolutely. No, I look forward to it. And thank you so much for your time today, Bob. This has been phenomenal. I can't wait to to come up to Howell Mountain and definitely recommend everybody not use a GPS, but go up and, and visit you at your, at your winery. It's pretty phenomenal. Thank you, Sarah. I look forward to that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss out on the latest information and stories in the food and wine world. You can follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine as well as our amazing guest at Robert Foley Vineyards. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-F-O-L-E-Y-V-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D-S. You can join us weekly for live wine tasting on my personal Instagram as well at Sarah underscore Faraday. Please join us next week where I sit down and explore wine education available to anyone who's just curious to learn more about wine with the founder and CEO of Napa Valley Wine Academy, Christian Ogenfuss.